0: I think there's a lot of temptation in this world to try and live your life the way a book tells you or someone you admire leads theirs. And people get in trouble when they don't fully assess the impact of what they're feeling and their own truth, what they want to do with their lives. I think if you're a savvy professional, you're putting the feelers out there, you're thinking about your life and your career in all different kinds of ways, and all of these things that were listed in that tweet summed up comes down to trusting your gut and doing ultimately what your compass is telling you to do not what someone else's compass is telling them to do
1: hi i'm jubin operating partner at kleiner perkins and i'm excited that you're tuning into grit a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create build and scale world-class organizations the goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are Rather, a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Varney was like, I'm excited that you have Patterson on. She's going to be a tough interview. And I was like, well, why do you say that? And he's like, she's like, well, she's just very meticulous about the words that she uses. Very. She's super put together. Super put together. Did you like it? Did
0: you like the episode? I'm curious. I did. You know, what's funny. The thing that stood out to me most about the episode is she got the same feedback from her coach that I got at the GSB from my favorite class. So there's a famous course at the Stanford Business School called Touchy Feely. It's basically an interpersonal dynamics relationship course. And I had the same feedback given to me that Sarah brought up on your show, which is that People were like, you're too put together. Mm. You seem like you've got it all figured out. I don't trust you Mm. and I don't want to get close to you as a result because there's a trust issue. And they're like, you're not doing anything wrong. There's no issue. Yeah. But I related to a lot. And like, I've never had actually a a professional coach, but it made me feel good to think that the best thing that she got out of that (laughs) I'd already gotten at one point. Well, because I can relate. Let's juxtapose that to Jim Steele, who is like the easiest interview I've ever done. He's an awesome guy. He was one of the first people I worked with when I got to Salesforce and he's so memorable because I was a nobody. I joined, I was a manager and I got assigned to help him put together a presentation at some sales conference. He meets me. We have a 20 minute conversation. He's like, whatever you think is going to be good. No big deal. He leaves. I see him a week later in the hall and he's like, how you doing, Scott? The guy just remembers everybody's name. I'm yeah. like, I'm a nobody. Yeah, It's one of those things that always stuck with me in like a, just a shocking way. How real and relatable that guy is.
1: You should listen to that episode. Yeah, I haven't listened to it, (laughs) I will. You should listen to that one. What people don't understand is that they think this is all natural. That this is all just incredible luck and timing and people that are born with the gift of gab or the gift of marketing or the gift of sales. And it just isn't true. And there's so many details that you see behind the scenes that you never know about, but that are like real work. Yeah. I
0: mean, Sarah Patterson and I have this in common in that we are both bankers. Yeah. And as bankers, you're kind of taught to project the unflappable duck paddling hard on the water, but everything's calm on the top. I think that's a tough way as a leader to start your career because you're afraid to share vulnerability. You want to
1: project strength. Mm -hmm. And so I felt stunted a bit by that experience. Do you find it interesting now that there is a new era where vulnerability is strength. That's not how you were raised, especially in the corporate world. That's not what you were told to be and to do. Now there's folks like Brene Brown who say vulnerability in yourself is weakness. Vulnerability in others is strength. That's why it's hard. It's absolutely
0: turned the tables. I think it's something that we all used to shy away from and it showed weakness. And now everybody's realizing that the more vulnerable you are, the stronger you appear. Do you feel like you've implemented it well? Yeah, vulnerability is something that I think we all tried to hide. And now you realize that the more vulnerable you are, the more real you seem to the people that you're interacting with, and the more they trust you, and the more they wanna follow you. And leadership is about getting people to follow you and partner with you. And so vulnerability is a huge component uh, in the equation.
1: You've been portrayed to me, and this characterization 10 minutes into getting to know you feels pretty right, like steady Eddie, just very consistent. Don't you think it's a little unfair sometimes where you're like, wait, it feels like a knock against me that I am not more emotive? I definitely
0: keep a pretty even keel. Yeah. And I think that's just genetics. That's how I was born and maybe how I was raised. What was your accolade in high school? In high school, I was uh, voted most graceful under pressure. True. (laughs) True. Yes, yeah, so I've always just had a, a bit of a calmness to me, yeah. a, a centeredness, yeah. and so in general that's done me well, but there are times where I think people want to feel you. They want to feel a little vibration, and yeah. so I've had to work on being more open, being more honest, being more transparent about how I'm feeling,
1: because people want to know,
0: are you fired up? Are you sad? Or how do yeah. you feel? Because it, it brings
1: out the humanity in, in our teams. I'm very similar in that way where I've grown up where vulnerability is absolutely weakness. That is not a projection of strength. I remember the moment that I had, not even professionally, but personally, was there was something I was going through that was really hard in my life. And I cried. And I was with my girlfriend at the time and I never cry. I just don't cry. And she said her guard went down so fast when she saw that. And all she wanted to do was be supportive. His bone in her, just it was just shaking that she wanted to help. I never thought of it, that it could lower someone else's guard. And I think that is the power of vulnerability. In order for others to lower their guard, you need to do it first. And I think you have a particular responsibility as a leader because there's already that relationship. It's a little bit about you gotta give
0: to get. And I think if you lower your guard and let someone into how you're feeling and what you're thinking truthfully, you're much more likely to get an honest response back and it's
1: really hard to lead teams through hard times if there's no trust and it ultimately comes down to that. I usually start these episodes formally, but we've started. So why don't I take it back from the top and read your background back to you? Cause I do that with every episode. Tell me what I screw up and then we can use that as a launching off point. Cool. Sounds good. All right. You went to Colgate, you got your bachelor's in economics and philosophy where is Colgate? Like New York City area? Western New York. It's okay. out by Syracuse. Okay. It's this tiny school, isn't it? Pretty small. Yeah. Tiny relative to UC standards. Yeah. 700 kids in a class. My high school was that size. Yeah. You were on the ski and the golf team. Then you went to Chase. You're an analyst in the iBanking team there for the healthcare vertical. Then you went to JPMC. Was JP Morgan and Chase? Neither? I had three
0: business cards over five years, but I was at the same company the okay. whole way. So, okay. Okay. That so makes sense. Chase bought... H and Q, right, and then J P Morgan merged with Chase right. and H and and so I had a bunch of different business cards, but I was essentially at the same bank the whole way. Albeit, I started in New York and moved to San Francisco.
1: No small feat being an investment banker for five years. That's, oof.
0: I think I would have burned out a lot faster had I stayed in New York. I found that the switch to San Francisco. I also moved from healthcare to tech yeah. right at the turn of the millennium and so what an amazing time. I got lucky getting out here when I did. I saw 3 months of craziness before the bubble burst. Yeah. I feel just lucky that I got to see that. Obviously it was a bumpy ride down the backside of that yeah. bubble. Yeah. But I think that whole experience of moving to the West Coast is what extended my life yeah. as a banker. No knock on the West Coast bankers, but it was definitely different a, vibe, an easier job it's than life. it was on New York.
1: I was just in New York last week. Isn't life so much easier here? I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but it's just a little bit more relaxed. I think that's one of the things I fell in love with about
0: the Bay Area is that the vibe and the people there's an optimism and an easiness about people that to me is just more attractive and more appealing. I love New York. I miss New York. I love being there. I think New York brought me to life out of a, a childhood stupor. You know, I like to think I was a bit of a lazy kid and New York just was like nine volts running through you every morning. And so that did something, it changed my chemistry and for that I'll forever be grateful. But then I was happy to back
1: off at a hair when I got out here to the Bay Area. I think that's fair. Then you went to Walmart. You spent three years at Walmart. I think it was walmart.com out here, right? That was in San Bruno, wasn't it? It's San Bruno now and it, it used to be in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, then you went to GSB, Stanford to get your MBA. You interned at Google over the summer. Then you went to Salesforce in 2007. Started as a manager in product marketing for SMB, and then you got a bunch of promotions: senior manager, product marketing director, senior director. When you were the director of product marketing on Chatter, was Sarah Patterson also on that team? She took it over from me after. At one
0: point, I was running marketing for both the sales cloud and Chatter, and as Chatter became a real business, I was asked to choose and. As much as I love chatter, it was a phenomenon inside of Salesforce. I chose the flagship and went over to the sales cloud.
1: Yep. So then in 2010, you went to sales cloud, which was like the product, did two years as the senior director there, then two years as the senior director for solutions marketing. Then you became the VP of marketing for the Salesforce platform. And then in 2015, you joined ThoughtSpot. You started as the VP of marketing. You spent a year doing that and then As of 2016, you've been the CMO of ThoughtSpot, so seven-ish years, right? That's a great summary. All right, I have a place that I wanna start with you, which is a tweet that you, I think, retweeted or commented on, but there's something significant about it that caught my eye. What you said was, how much could I lose is not merely a financial question. If I make this choice, how much time could I lose? How much sanity could I lose? How much reputation could I lose? How much happiness could I lose? Opportunity cost is about a lot more than money. I thought it was a very interesting quote. Clearly it resonated with you. I'd love to just hear your perspective on it. Wow, yeah, you're taking me back. I'm trying to even remember who wrote that.
0: I mean, I think it gets to the heart of how all of us make decisions and try and manage our lives. I think there's a lot of temptation in this world to try and live your life the way a book tells you or someone you admire leads theirs and people get in trouble when they don't fully assess the impact of what they're feeling and their own truth what they want to do with their lives and there was something about that quote where I think the takeaway from me was trust your gut I think if you're a savvy professional you're putting the feelers out there you're thinking about your life and your career in all different kinds of ways And all of these things that were listed in that tweet summed up comes down to trusting your gut and doing ultimately what your compass is telling you to do, not what someone else's compass is telling them to do.
1: You feel like you always had that perspective or do you think that changed over time? I.e., do you think that you over-indexed on the opportunity cost of money, as an example, when you were in investment banking and under-indexed on time? Oh, my gosh. I'll never look back at my decision to be an investment banker and say
0: it was a bad decision. It was the best decision I could make at the time Mm -hmm. with the limited information I have. Mm -hmm. Looking back, do I wish I'd found marketing sooner? (laughs) Absolutely. I was good at math as a kid. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I came from a big family of lawyers. I had this hunch that that was not going to play out for me, but I sort of thought that was the path that I'd eventually end up back on and that I knew nothing about money and said I should learn something about finance in the world. That's why I got into banking. Back in the day, I was reading pamphlets at the Career Center in paper. There was no internet. I was trying to figure out what could I do with my life. And that seemed like I equated it to joining the army. I felt like that was a place that was going to take lazy old me and push me and drop me in the middle of New York City and turn me into something. And so I didn't know what that was going to be, but at least it ultimately led me to a path in operations and a path in marketing. It just took me a little longer to get there than ideally I would have liked. Is it true
1: that you have generations of your family with lawyers?
0: Yeah, I do. I have a, a long line of uh, lawyers. My sister, my dad, my grandfather. I am the black sheep.
1: I asked Brian McCarthy about you. You know who that is? I love Brian, of course. He would say he loves you too. Quite literally, he would tell you he loves you. And- I, well,
0: Brian loves a lot of people, but <laughs> I, I will read deeper into that and know that he does love me. I said,
1: dude, tell me about Scott. And he's a a friend. He's great. He said, I used to call him Tom Cruise. (laughs) Because he's got this just great looking family straight out of Hollywood that you could pull out of a magazine. (laughs) Uh, I had a lot of fun working with Brian. I definitely miss him. He's a world class CRO.
0: He is world class. How did you meet your wife? I have an interesting story on my wife, actually. Um, It's funny that you bring that up. I met my wife on a hike Yeah, here in San Francisco. I had another mutual friend of ours invite us both on a group hike and it ended up being... You're getting set up. It was not a setup actually, which is, I mean, there's some debate about that, <laughs> but no, it, it was a friend hike. My wife and her friend are both doctors and they... Work crazy hours and my wife had been up all night and her friend had a rare window to get out on for a hike on a weekend when she wasn't working, they were both residents. And so she's like, I gotta get out on a hike. You gotta come. I know you're up all night. She invited me and another woman. The four of us went on this hike. And it was one of those things I think I'd been out super late the night before, and so my wife had been up all night, we met in front of my friend's house, having no idea who each other were. And let's just say it was not love at first sight. (laughs) We both grunted at each other. She told me that she needed a cup of coffee and went down the street to Starbucks to get one. And I could barely see straight, but it's funny. And over the course of the hike, you know, we went on like a four hour hike over in Marin. It all just started to come into focus and we had a bunch in common. One of her grandfathers was a Presbyterian minister like mine, kind of a crazy phenomenon. And we just found that we liked the same music. And by the end of the hike, we were finishing each other's sentences. So it was a pretty special moment.
1: Super cool. All right. Downhill skier. That's what I hear about you. You're on the ski team in in school and you're on the golf team. I have a question, which is which sport of those two is harder to be the best at? Because they're both incredibly hard to perfect. Great question. You know, there's something about sports, which is in both
0: cases, and I think just in sports in general, the number of people that have access to it actually is a factor in how successful you can be. And both of those sports are pretty hard to get into historically. Golf, I think now is becoming a lot easier to get into. And so I would argue that it's probably harder today to become a world-class golf professional. Skiing is just harder because you got to be near a mountain. It's an expensive sport. There are a bunch of barriers to that. Skiing requires just an incredible amount of physical fitness too. It's not as popular easily to see this as a casual viewer, but the best ski racers today, they could be linebackers in the NFL or running backs. They are incredibly strong and agile. And that is something that at least when I was going through it was not the case. And now I watched the leaders of the sport. We just watched the Olympics. It's insane what these people can do.
1: I also think about not only the skill that they have, but Michaela Schifrin, the greatest skier that we've ever seen, basically. She's the goat. And you have one chance. You go down this hill one time and you nail it, you get a medal. You don't, which she didn't a couple of times, you don't. And you have four years of anticipation to that moment. It's all you think about. It's all you do. I can't imagine that pressure. I think you do pretty well, is it? But I can't imagine that pressure.
0: I just got back from taking my kids skiing for the first time this year. We haven't been able to get up to the mountain because of COVID. And it was the first time I have ever been on a chairlift. I've got two little girls. They're five and seven.
1: With them. With them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And it was just fantastic to get them out there. And skiing was a transformational experience for me. It was the highlight of my childhood. I think back on it often in both sports were individual sports, more or less, even though there's a team component to it. But there's something really formative about standing in a starting gate all by yourself at the top of a mountain, zero degrees in your tights and having a starter say in three, two, one. Go, that feeling with all eyes on you, everybody's at the race, the coaches, everyone's watching, Michaela, the world is watching. Yeah. It's incredible. And the only other sport that's similar is actually being on the first tee. I was actually reading this article about Jordan Spieth, the famous golfer. And he's like, I've never been more nervous in my life than the first tee of the Ryder Cup. And he's won the junior amateur. He's won everything. Yeah. And here he is at the Ryder Cup. And he's talking about, you know. He said he can't feel his hands. Just completely freezing him. Yeah. And when you're playing basketball or when once the play starts in football, you're starting to move and things are happening and your instinct can take over. But in that moment where everything is still at the start of a race or on the first tee of a golf course, it's a different vibe.
1: It's funny, I could be in a group with my friends on the first tee and I still feel that way. I I (laughs) I still feel that way. It's a pressure cooker and I think that's good for many things in life down the road. When you're in the gates on the top of the mountain, and the person's counting down three, two, one. Is your heart rate up, or is it perfectly flat? What is your internal state when you're there? What are you thinking about? And it sounds like you were pretty competitive. I didn't realize how competitive you were as a downless skier. I mean, yeah, I, I grew up in Vermont, and Vermont, you know, in
0: Colorado, California, have great ski programs. And so I went to Colgate, and we had a great ski There's a It was legit. It, yeah, it was legit. I mean, we were, basically, the, there's two ski leagues in the U.S. There's the NCAA, Division One, and then there's the NCSA. And so it's kind of like Division Two. But we were a, you know, regional contender every year yeah. and it was an amazing experience. There's nothing quite like that feeling of being in the starting gate. And my heart rate is jacked as it, it is. is, as is yours when you're teeing off on the first tee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're doing everything you can to try and calm it down. Deep breathing. You're trying to visualize the course. You're trying to get in the zone and you're trying to get in the, force yourself into the zone, which is a lot harder than if the zone happens to just find you in the middle of the game.
1: Yeah. Do you do this stuff? Like when you look at the skiers in the Olympics, you can see them standing on the top of the mountain and moving their body in the way that they expect it to move on the run. Is that what you're thinking about when you're standing up there? Because I'd be thinking, F*** you, don't fall. Do not fall.
0: No, they actually memorize the course. And there are trickier turns. There are places where the hill tries to pull you one way. And you have to actively think about how you're going to set up for the next turn and avoid the hill pulling you in the wrong way. And so they're trying to visualize that and memorize how their body's going to respond and try and get ahead of it. It's terrifying. It's a super cool sport. I wish it was a more accessible sport because it's one of the best things that's happened in my life.
1: When you joined Salesforce, there was about 1,500 people there a couple years after the IPO. There is something that you have said in regards to the lessons that you learned from Mark Benioff. And one of those lessons that you had articulated was that he always used to preach the tactics informed strategy. And I had a guest named Mike Clayville, who is the CRO of Stripe now, formerly the CRO of AWS. And he worked really close with Jeff Bezos. And Bezos says the exact same thing. That wasn't lost on me. What do you make of that? Tell me what you mean when you think of tactics informed strategy. When he said that to me for the first time, it was music to my ears
0: because as an investment banker, we were strategists, we were, or we were at least trying to be. And sometimes strategy is, it's a fluffy word. You, it's so high up in the clouds and strategy without real world application is worthless. And I think as a banker, I often felt imposter syndrome because I really didn't understand how the companies I was trying to advise worked. And when I went to work at Salesforce and I heard that from Mark, it just resonated with me because we don't ever really know what's going to work. Like we have good guesses and we're formulating strategies, but you got to test them. You got to put them to the practice. And when you're putting different programs in place and you're testing things and you're getting feedback, those are the tactics. And when one works and one fails that dictate the strategy that puts you on a better path. It kind of goes back to the whole reason I got into marketing in the first place or getting into an operating role is that I wanted to, get my hands dirty and do things and see the fruits of my work and learn from it and improve as I went. I think that mantra captures the spirit of that idea.
1: Do you ever think that the challenge with that is that in order to earn the right to experiment with tactics, you need to define some strategy? Yeah, it's certainly a give and take. You have
0: to start somewhere, right? And so everybody has a strategy in some degree, but if it's too disconnected from reality, it's not going to work. It's about choosing a path, choosing some tactics, executing them, seeing if they work, and adjusting course. I think it's this idea that strategy without tactics and without execution doesn't matter. That's the powerful piece of it.
1: You said you've spent eight dream forces behind the curtain, meaning operationalizing the entire event. I want to know what that crunch felt like. That is pretty much all you're thinking about all year is like this thing. How insane... Did that feeling get down the stretch? I bet you you never felt ready. I bet you every year, you're like, next year, we're going to be ready. And I bet you the next year, you'd try and do it earlier and all these things and you were never ready. Am I right? Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. It's funny. I started out dreading
0: them, as you might expect. And then over time, I learned to love that dread and that anticipation because I saw what it did to make people like me move. And it didn't just move the marketing team, it moved the whole company. And that was the biggest takeaway, is that you put a date on the calendar like that, and it's a date when products get launched, it's a date when the entire company arrives, it's a date when every customer shows up to understand what's next. And it's a forcing function, it's not like, oh shoot, such and such a thing isn't ready. No, it's got to be ready. And it makes everybody move. It didn't just move the customers. And of course, it's a huge pipeline generating event, but it moved the strategy and the execution of Salesforce faster. And I grew to love it for that because it was a force multiplier for the business.
1: Yeah. And I think, I imagine that when people introduce new product ideas or launches or whatever, one of the first questions that gets asked is, is it going to be done by Dreamforce? That's the point of it.
0: I love all my product management friends out there, but in the product building world, there's like, let's build some features. And, you know, if it doesn't make this release, it'll make the next release. That logic does not apply with Dreamforce. It's like you leave it all in the field. Either it's ready for Dreamforce, you've got to wait a year and that might as well be a decade. It was an incredible forcing function. It just accelerated the company. It definitely created a lot of sleepless nights, but ultimately I grew to love that. And I brought a lot of that to ThoughtSpot where I'm at
1: now. It's like the ultimate commitment of a roadmap
0: to a customer that just cannot slip. Yeah. It's the pressure that it applies in every dimension of a business. I mean, it's been, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It's been written about as like a lightning strike event and these lightning strikes, they have mass impact on companies and that's what's
1: so great about them. Tell me about the crunch. Did it get easier every year or did you just get better at it?
0: I think when you first do something you don't necessarily know how it's going to turn out. You're learning a new part of it, whether it's how the stage is set up or how demand gen works or, you know, how to get the right speakers on message. There are a bunch of different tactics that you learn along the way. And once you learn one, it's sort of in the arsenal and you're going to finesse it, but you pretty much have it. So I I feel like I gathered a bunch of different experience along the way, but the hardest part is always coming up with what's the new story. And how do we take what we know what we're building and turn it into a story that's going to win the hearts and minds of customers and prospects in the whole industry? Dreamforce was not a company event. It became an industry event. And that pressure was real. And that's the place where when I look back on what I learned from Salesforce, our focus on shaping that narrative and our relentless pursuit of perfection and pushing each other to make that story live up to the hype that became dreamforce it was unlike anything that i've seen it was a phenomenal experience
1: is that some of the most you've ever felt crunch professionally it was
0: pressure to come up with the goods and it's a different kind of pressure like hey i've got i i've just got to execute y number of things by a certain timeline that's like a hustle factor but there was a pressure of quality with dreamforce the story had to resonate, it had to land. It helped actually, as we matured, we started doing more and more focus groups and Mark would take the show on the road and test it. And that actually helped take a little bit of the pressure off because we weren't just pulling back the curtain for the first time and hoping it went well. By the time we delivered it in at least my final years, it was pretty well rehearsed. And we knew that we'd had the, what do they call it in the movies, the pre-screenings. We knew that the audience was gonna laugh when they were supposed to laugh. And so that took some of the pressure off. But in those early days, I just remember, thinking that we were redefining an industry. And that was super exciting.
1: Tell me if I'm wrong, but people looking in from the outside on a company like Salesforce, which is, I'd argue, top 10 most successful we've ever seen. And maybe that's, it's probably even top five. People think it was like, no mistakes, perfectly run. It's chaos on the inside. I want to even say organized chaos. It's barely even organized chaos. It is nuts. And it's one of the greatest businesses we've ever seen. Yeah, you know, I look back on it and I have kind of two minds. One is
0: that it's easy to look back and say we were just destined to win. And certainly by the end of my time there, that's one of the reasons why I felt like I had earned the right to leave. And then I was like, this place is going to make it whether I'm here or not. And I, it's going to go on to do great things. And I feel like I've contributed what I can and I'm going to go try my hand at something new. But you got to tip your hat to Mark and the relentless pursuit of being bigger and better. And he was never satisfied. Every year he brought the same hunger and the same enthusiasm to lead the industry. And that part, he pushed everyone. There was no free lunch. It was like every day he expected the best from people. And that drove the company. And and so, yeah, the pressure was always on. We could never rest on our laurels. One of the things that we said in the early days at Salesforce was only the paranoid survive. And there were people who'd come from other companies that Salesforce had disrupted and from other companies that just hadn't done as well. And I think that permeated throughout the company. And there was never, ever a feeling of sitting back and saying, look, we made it at least when I was there and that fueled us. And so it was always crazy. We were always striving to be better.
1: How big was the company when you left? You remember? It was about 20,000 people. 20,000 people. Okay. So then you decided I've done my tour of duty here. How does someone leave a 20,000 person company and join what was a series B that had just closed with 40 people. How the hell does that happen?
0: I know, I look back on that and think I might've been a little nuts to join a company that small.
1: Anybody that's joining a company that small is a little nuts.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of it is that I wanted to be a little nuts. I wanted to mix it up. And I felt like I'd done the safest thing. You know, I joined Salesforce right after it went public, 1500 people. I felt like I'd done everything there was to do at Salesforce. I think I could have thrown my name in the ring for the CMO job, but I wasn't really looking to be the CMO of a 20,000 person company. I kind of had the hunger to go back and build something again. And as a marketer, I just needed to be at a company where I was super passionate about the mission and the vision of the product and ideally a product that I could use. It comes back to my experience as a banker and then my experience at Walmart, where I'd use a lot of analytics products and not had a good time that when I was approached by Ajita, the founder of ThoughtSpot, about the vision for ThoughtSpot and the analytics industry, it just struck a chord. And I think if I'd drawn it up on paper, I'd have said, don't go anything below Series C and a certain number of people. But, you know, when you feel it and it's there and it's right and you're passionate, I got swept up in it and it's been a fantastic experience so far.
1: In 30 seconds or less, can you tell the audience what does ThoughtSpot do?
0: ThoughtSpot's mission in life is to make the world more fact-driven, and so we're trying to make the world of analytics easier for non-technical people. Data and analytics has historically been an industry for data scientists and data analysts who are the gatekeepers of analytics. And in today's world, we think that business people like us should be able to go and analyze and find their own insights, and that's what ThoughtSpot helps companies do.
1: It was founded in 2012. Is this right? Seven technical co-founders. Yes. There's seven co-founders. Yes. A lot of equity going. A lot of people early days. The cap table is crazy on this company. General Catalyst, Kosla, Lightspeed, Sapphire, Silver Lake. Those board meetings must have been quite interesting in the early days. In November of 2021, ThoughtSpot raised 100 million dollars Series F, led by March Capital, which put the valuation at 4.2 billion. It's on the Forbes 2021 Cloud 100 list probably doing over 100 million ARR this year. How did you evaluate this business? When did you know that this was the right one? What did you need to hear or see? I kind of made the decision at Salesforce that
0: it was time to start looking. I looked for about nine months at different companies. I was happy. I had a great team and the whole bit, but I had an itch. I was in a good enough spot to know that I would wait for something great. And when Ajit approached me, you're looking for a confluence of things. And so number one, mission and vision. Spot on, you know, analytics for the masses. We've been called Google for numbers. Like, how do we make analytics easier? Okay, you've got me. Product I can use every day, great. That was number one. Number two, back to your point on the seven technical co-founders, data and analytics is hard. And there are a lot of tech companies out there that kind of try to put lipstick on a pig and sell a vision, but ultimately if it doesn't work, you're left holding an empty bag. And so those seven technical co-founders, four of them came from Google. These were serious product chops and I felt like they had a seriousness about them that felt like they were going to deliver the goods. There's another dimension, which is serial entrepreneur. So Ajit had done this before. So he started a company called Nutanix, which went public in 2016. The pedigree of Lightspeed and Kostla behind him, that gave me a lot of confidence. And then the third part was culture. And the culture, you know, we define it as selfless excellence. We put the customer and the company ahead of the individual, but there was a thoughtfulness and a maturity to Ajit and the founders that sort of screamed we're serious and we can do this and we're not going to be crazy. We're not going to be petty or political. We're just serious, thoughtful people that are going to go change the world. And when you added up all those different components, I got that feeling that this was gonna be something special and it's proven to be so, so far.
1: Were they like, hey dude, you don't have a halo of a brand anymore. You don't have anything. In fact, you're not even gonna have a team when you start. You are PM, you're demand gel. First of all, are you sure you want to do this? Do you really know what you were doing? Question number one. And question number two, can you do this? For them to make that bet on you feels pretty risky too. And I'm not saying you weren't successful, but success is defined very differently at a 40 person company. When I asked Ajit this, and it's funny, there's a really
0: funny story. Ajit wanted to meet my wife, along with our lead investor from Lightspeed, Ravi. Before he hired you. Before I said yes. Yeah, okay. And he's like, I want to make sure that she understands that we're good people and we're not, we care about your family and this is a family and we're going to take care of you. When we got together, we talked about the business and the company and my wife was like, I don't, I trust you. I don't need to be here. But they insisted. And at the end, they're like, well, do you have any questions? And my wife was like, yeah, why this guy? (laughs) And she pointed at me and they were kind of caught aback. And I remember thinking like, oh geez, but Ajit collected himself and was like, Scott hasn't done this before. Like he's run marketing for big product lines at Salesforce, but I've talked to him enough to know that he wants to be a CMO and this is a big step for him. And he's got the hunger and the drive. And I can tell in our conversations that he's passionate enough to like make it happen. And so there was a little bit of insight there that I wasn't officially a CMO and I wanted to be one. And that hunger I think can fuel you through the hard times. On the other side of it, I ran a team in the early days when we launched chatter as a handful of people. And then I think by the end, I had an expanded marketing team of about 30 people. And so I when you knew left. How, yeah, when I left yeah. Salesforce, so I knew how to work with small teams. I was scrappy. It, that part didn't scare me. And people always go, oh, my God, what was it like when you left? I didn't have the halo effect. I didn't have the word of mouth, but the work the actual work that we did was not that different than the work any team at Salesforce at the time was doing. That part of it was fine. We were well-capitalized, so we had budget to go do things. And once we got the brand built, we had that too. And so it wasn't crazy.
1: To paint the scene here, it was Ravi from Lightspeed, the investor on the board. It was the CEO. It was you and your wife in your house. In a coffee shop. Right a by coffee. House. It's like uh, Nick Saban coming for a recruiting visit.
0: I look back on it and I'm glad I have that experience because it was super unique and it was obviously memorable.
1: So I talked to a few of your peers and I think old boss or two. One of the things that they said that was unique about you is that you always had a position on how to do enterprise marketing. And your position was that it was not always just about the story, but the data. What I found interesting about that is that many people in Salesforce were conditioned to the story. The story mattered a lot. It was very paramount in salesforce and you seemingly had a little bit of a different posture on that that it feels like you tell me if i'm wrong shaped your evaluation criteria for what you wanted to go do next and your style that you wanted to impart on the next business that you were at and not coincidentally the product that you ended up choosing right so come as a banker the my
0: job i took after banking was at walmart i ran operations for the logistics division of walmart.com and i joined that when it was 150 people Left and it was about a thousand, took it from 150 million to a billion dollar business. And it was an incubated tiny startup in the giant that was Walmart. That business, I ran operations for the most cost conscious business in the world. Walmart saves its customers money. And so I had one of the hardest jobs where I was showing data about how much our shipping and logistics costs were costing us. And we were trying to be. We were trying to give away free shipping to people or make it, you know, what it cost us. It was an incredibly rigorous analytical job. And with my banking background, that made sense. That helped really influence who I became as a marketer. When I discovered this job of product marketing, it was mostly story and it was an opportunity to bring out my creative side. And what I then saw is that the CMO role, where I could marry basically left brain and right brain, story and data, was just a great fit for my background. And so You throw in a product like ThoughtSpot, which makes analytics easy, and you've got a great combination of a vehicle to launch amazing stories and a vehicle to measure the success.
1: The other thing that struck me was the CEO, Ajit, he knew you wanted to be a CMO, but you did not get the CMO title to start. Was there any thought around that? Yes. Can you give me the inside baseball on it? Yeah.
0: I told him straight up that I wanted to be a CMO. I made that point very clear, and I said, listen, if I do what you and I both know I can do. I want that CMO title. And he, you know, early stage company, there weren't any C-level people other than him at the company. So giving away C-level titles creates a complicating Space. scenario yep. for other execs. And so he gives it to me, he's got to give it to other people. And so I understood it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. He knew what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, I understand your position. You understand mine. If I deliver for you at the end of a year, I'm going to come knock on your door and I want to get the promotion. And we shook hands on that. And he kept to his word. And he kept to his word. Titles mean different things to different people. What did it mean to you? I think I just have a deep sense of fairness. Yeah. I want to make money as much as the next person, but I've never been particularly greedy or focused on wealth creation. It's been about doing something that I love and getting paid fairly for it. And I just felt like what I was going to do for the company warranted a C-level title. And it was as simple as that. I don't think I looked much past it than that. I wanted to run a marketing team, and it just so happens that when you run a marketing team, you get that title, yeah. and so.
1: Makes total sense, tough question. So you join; they had just closed their first alpha customers while you were interviewing. It was early. In fact, given the way that I understand where the business was at the time, it was probably early for a B. That B was a little ahead of itself, right? Usually you don't want to do a B until there's some repeatability. This probably should have been the A when you joined. 40 people is a very early company. I bet you, Ajit was getting the benefit of the doubt because of his pedigree. Everyone had a nose that this guy was going to deliver the goods. We have a CEO in our portfolio. Exact same thing. Co-founder of Rubrik. It's the same exact thing. First quarter in, you do zero revenue. Is that, is that right? That's correct. How'd that feel? Did you almost quit? Tell me the truth. No. I,
0: you know, it's funny because when it happened, it's, we had three pilot customers when I was interviewing and they closed Walmart as a pilot during my interview process. And I think that was the thing that sealed the deal for me because as I mentioned, I worked at Walmart, I'd used a bunch of analytics tools at Walmart. I'd hired someone to code SQL and sit next to me at Walmart because the tools are so bad. I had lived the pain. And so when Walmart bought, that just was like, yep, we're gonna change the world. I could see it even though it was early. Mm Fast forward three months to the end of the first official quarter where I'd been in seat, and we put up a zero. And fortunately, I'd probably been on board for two months, and my thought was, I haven't been here long enough to take credit for the zero, and you can't fall off the floor, and so it's only up from here. It was so early, I didn't let it discourage me, but it did make me chuckle that, boy, I was like here we go. Hey buddy, welcome to the show. There's such thing as zeros in startup world. I think it was so early that it wasn't like we fell because we had just signed these customers, you know? And so we had one seller and two weeks before me, we had hired two more. Yeah, It was such early days.
1: Was every subsequent round a step up from the previous round? Yes. It was. Absolutely. What do you think as you reflect back was the lowest point for you? the part where you almost quit where you went home to your wife and you're like, Hey, I don't know if I can do this. This is really hard.
0: I have had a remarkable amount of conviction around the vision. And so I've never doubted the company, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you that the hardest time has been the last two years during COVID and it's for, reasons. One, I think just leading through a pandemic is hard and everybody I'm sure who's been on the show recently would say the same thing. It's a difficult thing because you just can't see people in person. And so you have that as a backdrop, but over the course of the last three years, it's really just over two years, we have gone through a massive transformation of the company. So when I joined ThoughtSpot, we were selling on-premise software, which is unbelievable. I think for someone like me, who was a cloud computing evangelist at Salesforce to join a company that was selling on-prem. And it's a crazy story because at the time we were selling a Google-like search experience on data that couldn't be done with cloud databases. There was no database out there that was fast enough to do what we did. And so we were actually shipping appliances with crazy amounts of compute and our own in-memory storage engine to be able to make analytics fly. So it's basically like a hot rod, a, a souped up Ferrari that you deploy in the Fortune 500 basement of a Walmart or a Verizon or a Caterpillar to deliver this amazing experience on data. And fast forward to two years ago with the rise of Snowflake and Google BigQuery and Databricks, we saw cloud data warehouses perform at a level where the database that we built wasn't needed anymore. And so we pivoted the company entirely onto cloud data platforms. And then a year ago, we made the switch completely to SaaS. And both of those transitions, it's not uncommon. I'm sure you've had other guests talk about it, but it's a huge deal in terms of how the company is structured. I mean, from a go-to-market perspective, we were 100% ABM focused. We were going after only the global 2000. We were doing... All types of high-end, highly personalized, private websites for companies. like It was a very bespoke marketing exercise. Now, we've shifted entirely to PLG, free trial, classic consumption-based pricing. And with that, we're not going after the top of the market anymore. We're going after everyone. And it's completely changed our go-to-market, our targeting, the way we structure our sales team, and going through that entire process of basically restructuring the company during covid was
1: really hard. So I've had the Splunk CEO on the show. I've had the president of DataStax on the show. I've had the Alteryx CEO on the show. They've all done or are doing this. And it is not for the faint of heart. Going from on-prem to cloud as a delivery model is brutal. It is so hard because everything changes. Everything. Did you ever think like, maybe I'm not cut out as the marketer for this new world in this system? Or did it reinvigorate you thinking, man, I'm the perfect guy for this. Like I know the cloud delivery model better than anybody else in this business. And then can I ask a follow-up question to that, which is, did the DNA of the company need to change? And was that obvious to you, but not necessarily obvious to everyone else as that change was happening? Because I suspect a lot of things had to change with the type of person that you were bringing on. Yeah. When you're ramping down
0: one type of business and ramping up another business, It's hard because you have people who are sustaining one part of the business while you're trying to bring up the new one. And I think what makes it hard as a leader is you're constantly making trade-offs. And that tension is necessary, but that tension is hard. Mm -hmm. And throw in there the pandemic and throw in there the great resignation, and you're trying to motivate people in that transition. And some people see it and some people don't. And some people fall off the bus because they're not bought into the change and that's how it goes. And so I found that to be hard just as a leader, to keep people motivated, to make sure, especially when you're not in person and people are trying to read Slack messages and interpret what people are saying, things get lost in translation in the digital world. When you're going through transition, you don't want things to get lost. You want to be on top of it. And so I just found that combination super challenging, but I never lost hope in the, mission or the vision of
1: the company and the new model, like I, you know, it made sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it, it was, was something obvious. that when I joined, it I, was a necessary evil when you had joined to do it that way. Had you had, the delivery model, like with Snowflake and stuff, you would have done that in the first place. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And in some ways, we talk about it. When I first joined and I talked to Ajit, I was like, you know, I'm coming from the cloud computing company, and you're telling me we're going to sell some on-prem software here? And he's like, yeah, man, we have to. Like, it just won't work otherwise. And like these big companies, the, the data space has been slow to adopt the cloud. You have to first acknowledge that. Snowflake is a crazy phenomenon right now, but Snowflake was started the same year we were. And prior to that, the data industry, like a lot of these executives were like not in my lifetime and we're proving them wrong. And that's awesome. When I talked to Ajita, i like, we're going to go cloud at some point, right? And he's like, oh, absolutely, we have to. The world's going to go there. And like when it does, we'll be there. In a lot of ways, the shift to COVID and the rise of these cloud data platforms caused us to play our hand and yeah. to make that shift. And so in a lot of ways, I look at it and go, this is what I wanted us to do eventually, totally. no matter what. Totally. But then when you get into it, it's hard.
1: You had every chance to leave. I think a new CEO came in at some point, right? You're moving from on-prem to cloud. COVID happens as a part of that. You have to lay people off, not actually because of COVID, I suspect, but because you're changing your delivery model and you need to do a different type of person, different type of thing. You had every chance. And I was trying to figure out, I can't believe he's continued to endure. And as I started asking people more about you, I said, have you recruited him? Why haven't you recruited Scott, and they're like, oh, we have. Trust me, like we've tried. But it's not about anything but the mission for him. He needs to see this through. It is very important to him. And you said earlier, like I'm not really motivated by money or any of these other things. It is the mission. And I think for you, the mission is to see this company through to an event that's meaningful to everybody that was participatory in it. Even McCarthy said that. We all get crazy calls. It's
0: those recruiters. It's amazing. But Every year, people come through and every year I look at the business and I go, is this where I want to be? And I try to do this exercise where it's like, if I was a free agent on the street and this job came across my desk, along with the others that fly across my desk all the time, which one would I choose? And this is the one that I would choose. I certainly have some skin in the game and I want to see this through, but I also objectively look at it as an opportunity that I would pick again. And a lot of it comes down to I would pick the mission again, I'd pick the vision again, and I'd pick the people again. That's how I operate. And it's an incredibly fun product to work on. And I like the idea of working on a product that every business person on the planet should be using one day.
1: When you think back on the early days, are you embarrassed by the version of the company marketing team and the Scott that was seven, eight years ago?
0: No, I definitely look back on some of the things we did and they were cheesy.
1: Just kind of JV. But
0: they were what we needed them to be at the time. Yeah. And so I don't have any regrets. I mean, you know, one of the most fun things I've done, but if you look at it, there's an element of JV, if y'all you, use your word, in that we launched a campaign, a superhero campaign, which has been done by others, but we actually launched a superhero called Spot Girl. So Thought Spot, Spot Girl. And She had a search looking glass in her hand and a cape. And I created a whole series of villains that she would battle like the BI blob, the back, the Backlob blob, the, you know, Dr. Cube and the waiting widow, like all these basically like I, I personified the pain of every BI team. We wrote a comic book series. It was a ton of fun. We also had one of our salespeople dress up as spot girl at our booths at all the trade shows. I look at that and think it's, I see some of the pictures and I think it's a little bit cheesy, but at the time, like no one was doing it and it helped us stand out. And when you're a startup, you got to be scrappy and do whatever you can to
1: get noticed. So funny. You have said that the biggest thing that marketers have to do is prove their worth. What do you mean by that? (sighs) Yeah, I think it's the most important thing. I
0: often describe that I really have two jobs that my CEO cares about. One is story. What's the company's story? And two is pipeline. And particularly with marketing, so much of what we do is around story and is subjective. And it's really hard to prove your worth in a subjective world. And then on the flip side, when it comes to the pipeline, which actually is measurable, there's actually a bunch of nuance and complexity around trying to measure that appropriately. Not to mention there's a lot of complexity and it, it kind of comes back to data and the value prop of ThoughtSpot and the industry that I'm in. It's sometimes hard to measure, did that billboard turn into website traffic, turn into sales conversations, yeah. turn into deals? And so it takes science and a lot of effort to try and measure that. Yeah, Attribution's attribution is very hard. It's super hard. And so proving your worth is part about capturing the data, part about analyzing the data and part about creating a narrative which as marketers we should be good at to actually tell the story of your worth and that's where the merger of my interest in storytelling and my product come together in a really compelling way
1: when you think about what's next for you you're pretty young right like you're sub 50 i'm definitely under 50 yes. yeah you're like you're i'm 46 yeah okay so maybe this is it Maybe ThoughtSpot has such a giant outcome that you're just done, but I doubt it. Something tells me that even if this were a hobby for you, you'd still do it. Would you, knowing what you know now, join a company that early again?
0: Yes, if the mission and vision captured me the way this one has, I would. I'm not afraid of rolling up my sleeves and doing the work. I think that's the beauty of today's world is you can build a big business really quickly with not a lot of people. And you can change the world really quickly with not a lot of people. So, yeah, I would do that. And my wife likes to joke with me that I'll never be able to retire because I'll always want to be doing something. And, I, and she's right. That's definitely true. I don't necessarily know what it is, but it'll have to speak to me in the same way that ThoughtSpot has spoken to me.
1: Two years ago, you wrote an article on this day, on National Women's Day, and your team asked you to acknowledge a woman, I think not in your life, but just someone that you admired. And you said Sally Yates, and I wanted to give you this chance to acknowledge a woman in your life on the same exact day, two years, late, two years ago, right? It is National Women's Day today. It is, right? It is. I thought it'd be cool to wrap up with an opportunity to acknowledge. I have so many women in my
0: life. I had a good conversation the other day about women leaders and In marketing, there's a lot of women in leadership positions. It's actually probably the one position in B2B tech where women actually are pretty well represented and that's certainly the case at ThoughtSpot. And so I'm surrounded by a bunch of amazing women on my team. So I'll give a shout out to Emma and Cindy and Radhika, three of my leaders who are, have just done amazing things for ThoughtSpot. I called out Sally Yates in that post that you're referencing for her courage and standing up for what she believes is right.
1: Who is Sally Yates?
0: Sally Yates? was the U.S. Attorney General, and she's a lawyer and a judge, and she's a phenomenal leader. And she obviously had some challenges with the former administration and basically just put her money where her mouth is. You know, she disagreed and she stood up to the most powerful man in the world, and that's not an easy thing to do. And so I called her out last year for that. I've got two young daughters, and I thought she was an appropriate figure to just celebrate. I think I heard her on a podcast and I wanted to have her be the person I chose. But I think that the person that I'll call out is my wife. I mentioned already, she's a doctor and we make a great team. She pushes me to be a better human and father and partner than I could have possibly imagined. I have a very healthy drive when it comes to work and pushing myself in an individual way. And she helps ground me, I think, bring me back to earth on what I think matters more than anything, which is family. And sometimes I think if I hadn't had her in my life, I'd probably be a runaway executive with no family and no kids. And so she's really helped keep me on the path and she helps us live an amazing life. And so I'll have to give her props for both
1: being a phenomenal career woman and wife. All from a hike. All on a hike. Super special way to wrap. Are you hiring? I'm going to assume you all are probably hiring given the funding that's happening and the future of this business. What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles on your team or other teams that you want to shout out? ThoughtSpot's part of the modern data stack. And so it's a, you know one of the hottest places in technology. And one of the
0: roles we're hiring for right now is partner marketing. So if you're out there in the modern data stack area and you're looking to flex your muscles in the partner arena, we're looking for folks there. Or if you're creative, we're looking for creative folks to join the team as
1: well right now, as well as a variety of other positions. So check us out on the website. Lots of great jobs. What's the best way to get a hold of you or apply to some of these jobs? Career page and then how about you if they're inspired and they want to get in touch? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. You can hit me at Scott at
0: ThoughtSpot.com and I'd love to hear from you.
1: Ask question. What does grit mean to you? I
0: love grit. I think grit is what makes people successful. If I were to try and define it, I think grit is when you dig down deep to do something hard, often when no one else is looking. You know, you and I were chatting before we got started here about uh, a former sales exec at Salesforce, Jim Steele, who I remember from my first week at Salesforce just remembering my name. And you told me the story about how Jim memorized the names of 150 sellers and like, Jim did that in his hotel room when he could have been out at the bar, the grit to do that. That's grit. It's doing the things that everybody meets Jim and thinks he just remembers everybody's name and he has a God given gift. He's working like a madman behind the scenes cause that's important to him. So people often talk about culture and they say culture is what people do when you're not looking. I think grit is when people are digging down deep behind the scenes that it looks easy when you meet them, but it's not trust me. And it's that grit late at night. That pays off.
1: What a great answer. Scott, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us grit at KleinerPerkins.com.